All science fiction asks a question about humanity, usually through the lens of new challenges to be encountered in the future, whether it's to do with meeting new alien races or developing technology that changes the way we think about ourselves. Science fiction seems to ask this fundamental question, who are we? My guest today and I spent some time breaking down his science fiction universe and how his love of science fueled his ideas. Forget world building, let's make a universe. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Worldcraft Club podcast, a show all about helping you build expansive and immersive settings that will bring your audience back time and time again. But look, my intro back there set us up pretty good. I said it like it was easy peasy, craft a whole universe, but I think we know there's going to be a lot more to it than that. So I brought in some firepower. Hi, my name is Ross Bozell, and we're currently going to be talking about the series that I'm, I'm working on now called Legacy Earth. Now, Ross is getting ready to release book seven of this series shortly. It's available for pre-order now. There'll be a link in the show notes, but he has a total of 16 planned. That's a lot of potential content, but before we get started, let's just talk about the basics. Let's hear what this book is about. The series follows the military career of a guy named Lance Warder. Book one starts with him in Officer Candidate School, which takes place in Pensacola, Florida, where my dad went to Officer <laughs> Candidate School. Yeah, um, I'm familiar with the place. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. And and so, like, because my, my dad was 34 years military, and so I got to sit down with him and talk to him about, like, his experience with OCS, and I actually put in a lot of what he experienced into book one uh, to kind of sort of ease people into the universe because... yeah. Book one is on Earth, book two is on Mars, book three, and as the books progress, it gets edges into the sort of wider and wider galaxy. So it the the entire series takes place over, I would say, probably about 20 years, 15 to 20 years. This universe is going to be big, not just in terms of space, but in terms of time. The intent is to spend a long while here, 15 to 20 years and a total of 16 books. The real question that I have is this. Before embarking on such a long endeavor, where do you begin? How do you ease your audience into a setting that will expand itself so broadly? Oh, yeah. So the, the best way to put it is the first page. The first page, the main character is in a dropship with a bunch of other cadets that are, well, cadets, they haven't been officially initiated yet. And they're going to get dropped off to get their head shaved, literally first day of OCS. And in the beginning, when you start reading it, you're like, okay, they're in a transport vessel, likely something like an AWAC and C-130. And then the door slides open. And yeah. it's essentially, it's, I don't like to make the comparison, but it's like the dropships in Halo. Like it's, gotcha. it's a hyper, it's it, it, in comparison to our technology, it's a hyper advanced vessel, but yeah. it's a simple dropship. And so yeah. as they progress, like you're introduced to the technology little by little until, you know, the main character's girlfriend's like, Hey, you want to go for a ride? And they hop into her, well, for lack of a better term, hover car, because <laughs> it, it does take place in the 2500s. So it's introducing the readers into the world bit by bit by having a, a 
potentially familiar experience for especially for people who have gone into uh, in, into the military and then introducing them into or introducing the readers into like familiar technology that's just a little more advanced and then gradually like drip feeding more and more advanced technology to start yeah with. Ross's genre, I think, can best be described as military science fiction, with a touch of space opera thrown in for good measure. It's heavily influenced by games like Mass Effect and Halo from his misspent youth, and he's seeking an audience that are interested in the same things. I think any Halo players out there can recall the thrill of riding in a dropship with a bunch of Marines to be dropped off in a battle zone, and I think Ross is calling out to that. There's a familiarity to this sort of moment which leans into his passions and interests with the military. It leads the reader slowly but surely out of their familiar places and into the wonder of the broader setting he's creating. This introduction to his setting is a classic case of knowing your audience, and I think it's a great way to introduce a broader universe by laying out the breadcrumbs of the setting. But when it comes to the Worldcraft Club, we have a very specific direction we like to go with world building, and we always want to know. What's your fairy cake? Or what's the big theme or idea that you want to cover in your setting? And maybe another way to put it, what's your first love? Well, let's quote Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, science! <laughs> um, I'm really big into astronomy. Like, I've gotcha. stars, planets, all that stuff. Like, I'm, I've always been fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. You know, as I got older, it transitioned over into into the periodic table of elements like it seems when you look at it it's like oh hey look there's the elements but whenever you actually break it down it's beautiful perfect example just because it's my favorite element is is boron yeah i wrote a story when i was 14 15 that story will kind of be a rabbit hole to kind of get away from this (laughs) i'm not going to go into it a whole lot but um created this planet created these characters because i didn't know that krypton was a noble gas and whenever i found out that krypton was a noble gas i'm like hey what sounds like a good planet name and i came across boron i was like that's fantastic so i created this universe and everything and then i actually started doing research into boron and it is amazing it's an electron deficient element meaning it takes on the characteristics of things that it gets put in yeah. So, borocarbide, it's boron and carbon mixed together. Yeah. It becomes so hard, they use it as tank armor. Because of boron's electron deficiency, it's excellent at neutralizing radiation. So, if you look in, like, sunscreens and stuff, a... It's got big, boron. It, yep, boron is in sunscreens. If you use foundation, it's what makes your gives your foundation SPF. It is so versatile that it is literally in everything. And every time it bonds with something, it does something yeah. completely different. It's the corn and syrup of the periodic table. Only, pardon the language, but infinitely more badass. Yes, exactly. <laughs> more <laughs> badass than corn syrup, you say? Oh, yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> yep. That's kind of my roundabout way of answering like what got me into the world is yeah. looking at the technology that we have now and taking it to its logical conclusion in 500 years. I mean, yeah. go back with where we are, go back to the 1500s and you bring something as simple as a phone. They will worship you as a God. 
Yeah. So whenever I was looking at, at, you know, world building for this new future, given I it, what I've written will probably be where we're at in about 100 years. We'll probably be light years past where in 500 years where, where the book takes place. But mm. the big thing, at least in the, the beginning of the series, is I instead of looking at like elements and stuff like that, I looked at genetic engineering and where we're at on that yeah. and took that to its its logical conclusion to kind of anchor back to the point of this podcast, a world-building trope. And it's a yeah. slow-drip world-building trope of genetic engineering that mm-hmm. will go through all 16 books. It seems appropriate that Ross's first love with this setting is science, but who could have seen Boron coming from a mile away? It seems like Ross loves speculating, imagining the potential of something. If Boron could be this flexible, what could become of an earth-shaking idea like genetic engineering or manipulation? This theme is baked through his series and slowly grows throughout its run. One of the things I always find interesting about broader science fiction settings like this one is that they often grapple with humanity's place in a wider universe. A lot of science fiction has a story that it wants to tell about us and who we are. So I asked him, what's the story you want to tell about humanity? What do you think humanity needs to learn as it looks further afield? Yeah, so honestly, the the biggest thing I want to address as far as like, what is or who is humanity is, as humanity steps into the galactic stage yeah they find out that not only are they not alone in the universe they're an infant with a handgun compared to the other races there is a faction they're called the velis they're a faction of as well as lance puts them they're space nazis they're uh, all about genetic superiority when they stumble on something that's a bigger threat to the wider galaxy instead of being like hey guys let's work together they're like oh hey let's build a ship and just save all the genetically pure humans so like there is a there is as part of world building that struggle between a faction of humanity that is humanity should be on top and the main character who's like i've got a diverse crew of absolutely amazing alien crewmates i've got a trainer who their his species is called jerog they're anthropomorphized axolotls more or less especially book eight really the one that i'm working on now is that final struggle of can the good of humanity actually finally beat back the bad of humanity before they do irreparable damage. The notion of human superiority is definitely present in a lot of science fiction canon when alien races are involved. It harkens to this reflexive xenophobia humans tend to feel. It can be leveraged as powerful commentary on the human condition. Which brings us into the next question, with this wide array of alien races that he's tapped into. It creates this broader setting and leads us to ask, you know, where do they come from? 
As a bit of level setting here, I had referenced another setting, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek universe, where several alien races appear. There's another useful trope that Ross leverages here in giving his races a side characteristic that helps the reader to place them in the universe. I reference the Ferengi in particular. They're a money-hungry, wealth-hungry race in Star Trek who are always looking for a way to make money out of a situation. It's this point where I ask the fundamental question, how do you go about introducing these races? Ross's method here is interesting and harkens back as far as medieval practices during negotiation. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because, yeah, in book two, that's when the first alien race is introduced. And it is a diplomatic mission. Be like, hey, you guys have officially colonized your entire solar system. We see that this installation on Mars, which has been completely terraformed at this point, which... With environmental storytelling, I showed how Mars died in the first place, and it has to do with that really big canyon that just like yeah. stretches the entire length of the planet. Yeah, but yeah. they show up and they're like, "Hey, we how we do diplomatic or di get diplomatic missions like this as our race is we trade, and it's kind of a hint back to like ward hostage situations back in like the the." 16 of uh, 14 1500s where okay. they're like hey i'm the diplomat this is my child bring them to your ship show them your ship show them your people show them your ways you are the diplomat give me your child or your right hand person we will take them onto our ship you will they will get to see our people get to see our ways so right off the bat because lance's dad is a high up military guy he ended up by happen chance, being the diplomat. So yeah. Lance got shoved over to the Gallio ship, yeah. where over, actually, I would say probably about 80% of the book takes place where he's learning the Gallio culture. He's learning games that the Gallio play. He's interacting with different races. There's a, a race called the Perune. They're inspired by electric eels. And yeah. Their people are, because they can generate electricity so well, they're just naturally really gifted with electronics. So, like, the entire electronic division are these eel-like people that yeah. they're just good there. And then there's oh the Tardigs, which are... Do you know what a Tardigrade is? Are they not... The, are they the water bears? Or? The water bears. Yeah. Yeah. So, essentially, the Tardigs are... They're a water bear, but made like nine feet tall yeah. and without like the pulsating face, like more of an actual face. Okay. Um, yeah, that's 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 nightmare fuel. Yeah. 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 And they're gentle giants. I mean, they can most definitely wreck stuff when things go sideways. Yeah. But they have adopted the role of, well, the ones who aren't in the criminal underworld have adopted naturally adopted a role of like a protector. So security. And so. And it's just because if someone comes in shooting, like the first time that one of the main characters who has a railgun shotgun is the human yeah. weapon. So like, if you know anything about railguns, those things are terrifyingly powerful. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first time you read a, uh, meet a Tardig, not wearing any armor, gets a railgun shotgun blast straight to the chest and it doesn't do anything to them. Yeah, yeah. But they're like naturally benevolent. They look horrifying. Yeah. But they're they're protectors. So to kind of go back to answer your question, I tried to give 
each race a a side characteristic that they're naturally more adept to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're not like the the Fangi or whatever they are. The Ferengi. Like, yeah. Ferengi. Yeah. But they're not like the Ferengi. Like I don't. Except there is one race that that is very kind of one dimensional, <laughs> like the Ferengi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they're not greedy. They're sociopaths to yeah. the point where they won't even interact with each other. And if they do, it's 100%. How can you serve me? And then how can I kill you? And yeah. like to the point where if one shows up on a ship, everyone's like, Nope, get him off the ship. We don't want him here. He yeah. is going to do something horrible. And every single time they do something horrible. So aside from this Fikari, I try and make them where just like, just like humans, like you don't ever see a super scrawny dude as a bouncer at a club. It's always yeah. a big guy. So yeah. it's the the way that I I made the races is they're all very diverse, but yeah. they they all play these different unique roles. Yeah, they naturally climatize to what they kind of suits them best. So earlier on, we talked about Ross's first love, the science, physics, chemistry, and astronomy. But how did this impact the way that he developed his alien races more deeply as the series expanded? We got into a discussion about planets, biology, and how this impacts the different cultures of the races that he's creating. Ultimately, though each race had a more defined role to play early on that set the visitant at ease, he did later add and explore more of these races, some of the whys and wherefores of these different and unique cultures he was creating. Actually, perfect example is the Jerog, which are the yeah. axolotls. Their world is a highly aquatic world given nobody's going to see their planet until I think it's book 10, maybe 11. Yeah. You get to get a feel, a sense for their world by the way that they fight, the way that they have diplomacy, the way that they carry themselves in non-aquatic environments. Yeah. With that alien species, they do a lot of almost like the, the way that they fight is almost like they, they're slithering through the air because of the way that that axolotl swim it's very yeah. use their whole body um yeah. and so you get a feel for these races and their worlds what their world will be like before books before you even see their planet and then yeah. once you see their planet you're like oh okay i get why they did that like it, it'll help character quirks like tick a little bit better like for example, the the Galio, they come from a world that has like their skin is very chitinous, but when you go to their world, it's in it has very frequent high power sandstorms, and yeah. so you you don't get you know whenever you look at me like okay they're definitely tough they're long they're lanky but when you go to their planets like they're long and lanky because that creates less wind resistance they're incredibly tough to the point where they can almost take a bullet at least one or two before their skin breaks because if they didn't have that tough skin they would have been shredded by the windstorms or by the the sandstorms yeah i like to try and get people to think about what the home planet of these aliens are like before they actually reach the home planet. Yeah. 
No, that's wild. And then, and it's it sounds as if you've got plenty of time as well in your series to explore the rest of your rest of your settings. And I know you have um, an interest in in astronomy. So, um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the planets that you've developed and kind of how you have um, sort sort of the, the the work that you put into them and and how and how you've displayed it and how you might you might go forward with that? Oh yeah. So actually. Uh, to go with Hunter Killer, which is the most recent book. It releases October 13th, so it's up for pre-order now. In Hunter Killer, the, the story is about the main character trying to find the Jerog who trained him to be a special operation and tactics operative, so a SOAT. They're hmm. kind of like the specters of oh, cool. my, yeah, my yeah. universe. His name's Chidavia, and his ex-girlfriend, who is... She was the nurse that took care of his OCS team whenever they were going through officer candidate school. And she was the nurse that um, gave them their CRISPR shots that enhanced them into essentially peak human levels, if not a little above Spartan um, twos <laughs> without, without the horrible trauma. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so in Hunter killer, he is trying to find Chidavia and Amber. And a very, very special artifact that belonged to a race that had completely inhabited the galaxy yeah, and died off before even the first council race, if we want to. Yeah, yeah, this this era, this epoch, yeah. Yeah, before they even came, like, um, had wood ships to sail on. And so he's trying to find them. And one of the, one of his leads goes to Tress to be so if you want to look it up it's capital t lowercase r capital e s dash to yeah. b and yeah. it is a planet that reflects less than one percent of light that hits it so we cannot yeah. see anything that's going on on that planet yeah but apparently it is a transition planet that is going from a relatively solid planet into a gas giant. So that planet is literally ripping itself apart until it becomes like something closer to Jupiter. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, you know what? What does that planet look like on the ground? What yeah. lives on that planet? So they visit Tress 2B and they get to yeah. see what happens if you're on that planet and your spacesuit gets compromised. Yeah. Um, a blender would make it look tame, just to yeah, yeah. put it bluntly. Um, and then what? Yeah, what kind of animal or what kind of species would have to? What would they have to be like to exist on a planet that's in transition from a um a terrestrial? Oh, oh, I don't, I don't I can't remember the the phrase for, it, but I'm just going to use like a terrestrial planet that was solid into a gas giant. So it's literally ripping itself apart. How massive would something have to be? How almost Lovecraftian yeah. would the race have to be to exist there? And with to stay on Tress to be for a little for for a second. I don't go into what those races are, what they look like or anything like that. Yeah. I, I I took a very, I, I was very inspired by HP Lovecraft and his unknowable, like his unknowable elder gods. I really like that as well. 
yeah yeah it, in the uh in my approach to like the the i'm just gonna i, don't, I didn't even give them names the the yeah. trust to be um and so it's yeah it's um i like i, I like looking at at what we are currently looking at and asking questions about and being yeah. like, you know what, if we were there, what would I want it what to would, look like? Or what would it, what would it more logically look like if it was actually even somewhat inhabitable? So at this point, we were starting to wind down in the interview. With only a few minutes left, I asked Ross what he really wanted his readers to take away from this setting. What does he want the visitant to feel? This can be very important when establishing themes in a setting. This led us to talking a little about the God's Eye Galaxy. There'll be a link for a visual of that in the show notes. And that's how we got here. If you just look at that closely, like, it, it's indescribable. Like, mm-hmm. it, yeah, you can look at it, you can pick it apart, you can, you can be like, okay, this is what it looks like, anything like that. But if you were to actually picture yourself on the bridge of a ship as your ship drifts up to that thing you're still hundreds of thousands of miles away from it but it stretches beyond your field of vision Hmm. like i i want people to feel people who read the book to realize just how small we are as humans but at the same time and i i use the god's eye galaxy in one of the scenes to do that but i also want I, I want the readers to go through all of the spectrums of emotion, like uh, hope, fear. Uh, uh, I want them to fall in love with the characters. One of one of the favorite characters that my editor has is um, she's a Jerug with an autoimmune disorder, so she wears pink armor and yeah. she runs around. You never see her. You book eight still haven't seen her and um, yeah. every single time my editor's like when can we see her face i want to know what she looks like I, I want i want my readers to feel anticipation um on on you know the the fates of these characters but yeah. i think most of all i just i i want them to feel the same passion that i feel about these books for everybody it it manifests in different ways um for me i am constantly trying to figure out how to do the next cool thing or what what cool like hint can i put in one book that's going to pay off massively three books later one of my favorite youtubers is hello future me oh Um, i love that guy oh yeah yeah, like i i have i am probably single-handedly responsible for about half of his views especially (laughs) the one on world building the ones on world building magic systems i will i have listened to those hundreds and hundreds of times because kind of like through osmosis the way that he talks about world building helps with the way that i develop the worlds for for my readers um Mm. And yeah, I, and ultimately I just, I, I want anybody who reads the books or be it one book, um, which book one is 99 cents. Um, I have requested that it stay 99 cents that way it's, it's quick, easy, cheap buy. And if you like it, awesome. You can dive into the series. If not, it's not like you wasted five to $7. I want them to feel the wonder of the larger universe that we live in 
even if we can't, even though we can't see it. So there you have it. A short breakdown of some ways that you can bring a big universe that is teeming with different races to life for your visitants. To recap, I think there are a few takeaways that everyone can use here. One, don't be afraid to lean on tropes at early stages, but be ready to expand on them when you have the opportunity. It's a good way to get initial investment from your visitant as they begin to explore your setting. You have the Tardigs, the big, strong, burly race. Early on, you may not wish to explore them too deeply, but as the story progresses, you may want to take opportunities to further develop where they come from, what their home lives are like, what the races that interact with them think of them, or conflicts that they might have with humans that might be unclear due to social confusion. Next, lean on your first love, this is item number two. Ross's clear love of science is what drives the passion for his work. It seems like a pretty broad tour of speculative science, dipping into chemistry, astronomy, physics, genetic engineering, and more. Because of this first love, he knows what he's making and it helps him to know his audience well as well. When you have the opportunity, go ahead and check out Ross's books. There'll be a link in the show notes as well as how to find Ross on all your favorite social media outlets. His latest book, Hunter Killer, releases in just a few days, October 13th, and is available for pre-order. His first book in Legacy Earth series is just 99 cents and would be a great way to get yourself started. And lastly, don't forget to hit us up on your favorite social media networks as well. Links will be available in the show notes with our link tree there, so you can check out other episodes of the show, or even, if you dare, join our Discord server where a lot of these discussions are happening day to day. So if you're looking to build up your world building skills and get a little more practice uh, trying to create settings, that's a good place to go. The community is super friendly and we would love to have you. So for Ross Bazell, I am James from the Worldcraft Club and we hope to catch you next time. Oh, oh that Aston corn syrup, you say? Oh yeah. Get out of here. <laughs>